I think that it's important that every artist out there and every performer out there gain some sort of literacy when it comes to contracts and when it comes to the sort of legal and business things that you should be looking out for. You can't enter into a contract knowing that the person on the other side is going to try to take advantage of you. Every week, I'm working with somebody who's doing something fascinating that I never would have seen if I wasn't in this job. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by Harlequin Floors, the world leader in floors, stage systems, and studio equipment for the performing arts. Our podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators, the backstage masters. My name is Anna Rob. And my name is Anna Aguilera. Adam Weisman joins us today to talk about entertainment law and intellectual property. Adam is a transactional attorney with a background in media and entertainment production, providing legal counsel on commercial and intellectual property issues. In addition to representing companies, artists and creators in the media and entertainment world, Adam regularly works with clients in leisure, recreational and other industries, advising them on licensing and regulatory issues and other legal and operational matters. Adam's practice combines his love of the arts, fascination with the changing landscape at the intersection of law and digital media, and insight gained from his past as an associate at a litigation firm fighting for his clients in court and resolving complex disputes. His approach balances through knowledge of the law with a clear understanding of his clients' practical business and operational concerns. Adam also acts as an internal general counsel for companies that require general business advice and regular assistance on transactional legal matters. Adam previously acted as a general counsel for Nylon Media until its sale to Bustle Digital Group in 2019 and currently acts as general counsel for Socialite, a full-service digital marketing agency. Outside of law, Adam is a musician and performer with a passion for blues, R&B and rock and dabbles in documentary filmmaking. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks and thanks again for having me. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit about your work with artists and entertainment law and and how do you engage with clients uh, in the entertainment world? Yeah, so my work with artists is pretty varied. My background in law is um, sort of in commercial and intellectual property work. And my personal life had a bit of a background in the arts, started um, acting on a pretty amateur level in high school and also was a musician for quite some time. Again, mostly on a relatively amateur level, but that got me to meet uh, people in the industry, uh, performers, different types of producers who all need legal help in different capacities. And over the years, I've just sort of amassed a whole client base of different performers, musicians, actors, uh, producers, people who these days, I think they'd call themselves creative entrepreneurs, which wasn't necessarily something that we we had too many of more than five or six years ago. And what sort of support do they need from you particularly? What do they come to you for? Yeah, so it's everything from drafting and reviewing contracts, negotiating with production companies, uh, if I'm dealing with with actors on the one hand, or negotiating with actors, lawyers, if I'm dealing with production companies on the other hand, navigating copyright, trademark, uh, and other intellectual property issues, especially when people are creating things from scratch or creating things based on other things, trying to decide how to make their own productions or their own works of art without getting in trouble, essentially, uh, which is something that everyone needs to consider at some point when they're creating something themselves. Yeah, that's definitely a very important thing. And I think nowadays with more, the more influences we have subconsciously than when we get to create, that's a, a whole other issue dealing with intellectual property, what is actually what's ours and what is 
not really ours. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I think part of what makes it so interesting is especially with all the platforms we have online these days, everyone is able to not just create their own thing, but get it out there in some capacity and you know, get to some audience that wouldn't necessarily have existed a decade or two ago. So you have on the one hand, a lot more people just getting work out there in new media that didn't exist before. But on the other hand, just like you said, a lot more influences on your own work as well. So it's it's easy to find yourself in the trap of creating stuff and then realizing a week later, oh, that's based off of somebody's TikTok or some meme I saw uh, from a week before. And that, that goes for jokes, that goes for songs, that goes for dances, it, it goes for a lot of stuff. Navigating that on the one hand, and then on the other hand, kind of knowing how having a basic understanding of how copyright law works is so important because it's not as simple as something exists or someone created it and then that's theirs, period. There's so much nuance between that, knowing what you can and cannot do maybe with other people's works or things that might not be considered other people's works or something that every artist who's creating anything has to learn in some capacity before they put themselves out there just to make sure, A, on the one hand, they're doing something fresh and new that people actually want to see, but be on the other hand, they're doing something that hasn't been done in a way before that would potentially get them sued in the long run. So how would you describe the difference between intellectual property and then I think that splits into copyright and trademark? Yeah, so intellectual property is a sort of um, umbrella of a series of different legal concepts and it captures copyright, trademark, patents and some other rights related to people's likeness um, and stories and things like that and kind of the the really simple way to describe each of them and it's it's great to have at least an understanding of what is what is copyright refers to the protection over essentially works of art written things paintings movies things that people create trademark is going to refer back to people's logos and their business names, basically things that you would have your business and everything underneath that would be captured by your trademark. Just like McDonald's captures a whole slew of uh, burger franchises. That's their trademark. Patents is something that I personally don't deal with too often. That gets a little more technical. And that uh, is protection over inventions and devices and systems. And that's something that comes up far less frequency in the art and entertainment world. And then there are things beyond that, like likeness rights, which everybody has. Um, if anyone's ever had a photo taken of them or they've been in a video, they know that the photographer or the videographer is going to get them to sign off on a release. And that release is basically saying, I'm letting you take a picture of me or take a video of me and you have my permission to use my likeness, which would be my face, my voice, my biography, my general kind of being uh, and to capture that in that media. One thing I'm interested in asking you is... Uh, because it's been such a large evolution in social media and promotions and stuff, has there been a lot of, like, legal talk about, um, for example, when I was, when we created uh, the Beatles show in Las Vegas, the Cirque du Soleil show, we weren't allowed to have any things on social media and we weren't allowed to release any of the music and there was lots of protection around any kind of release of anything prior to the show. Now in a lead-up to a show, talk about it, social media posts about it, things, backstage things, and uh, is kind of encouraged because it builds up the hype of 
any particular sort of entertainment event that people want an audience to come to. Is there any kind of legalities now surrounding what can and can't be shared and, and what are companies or individuals, how do they interrelate with that as, as, a, as a show? Yeah, so I think with, with our phones and with social media these days, anybody has the ability to become their own little kind of news center. And what, are you, what you see now that didn't necessarily exist, although it sounds like people were telling you this with your own production, in contracts, you're going to have a nice big paragraph saying, you cannot release anything on social media before this show comes out. We don't want you leaking anything. They have to be really explicit about it because whereas 15, 20 years ago, it would be work to leak something. Today, it's far, far easier. You see every major like blockbuster is fighting leaks constantly. Every Marvel movie is fighting leaks from set and it's debatable. Maybe those are planned, but that happens every single time. So that's one thing to look out for that I think a lot more producers and of course their legal are are tapping into just being a lot more careful of what you can and can't use. You'll see in uh, different types of photographer agreements or other artists who are working with companies, their companies will say, you can't put this on your social media. This is just for us. Things like that, that wouldn't necessarily have existed uh, a little while ago. And then on the flip side of that, the other legality to think of, and this is more for people who aren't necessarily in traditional productions, but more on the promotional side of things is uh, here in the U.S., and I know there, they, there exists kind of similar agencies in different countries around the world, there's a thing called the Federal Trade Commission, which has got into social media advertising and started making rules about making sure that if you're getting paid or if you're affiliated with something and you're posting about it, you actually have to let people know that you're getting paid or that you're affiliated with it in some capacity. So that's been sort of the opposite angle of that, where Companies are saying at this point, they've, they've clued in that the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, is requiring people to do this. Otherwise, big fines and penalties come after. So they are now saying, if you are going to release this, you have to say in your caption that you're affiliated with this or that we're paying you to say this or something of that extent. So it goes both ways. You have a lot more things being wrapped up and people making sure that no one's saying things. But on the flip side, they're also saying that if you are saying things, this is how we're going to make sure that you say things properly so we don't get in trouble. I really like that, actually. I really like that people have to announce that they're paid to be promoting something because it breaks that, you know, I guess the influencer culture where people are pushing products onto people unknowingly. I mean, I I think people can pick it these days, but the reality is some people may not. And um, if people are getting paid to do it, you should be knowing that they're actually, in, in, in essence, an advertising service, right? Yeah, I agree. I do. I do a fair amount of work in that world because it's all, especially these days, if you work in entertainment, it all seems to sort of meld into one big thing as more traditional productions are finding their way online in some capacity. So we do more and more of this advertising promotion work. And I absolutely agree. It's it's if influencers are fooling people into thinking that things are 100% organic, there could be a problem. There could be people getting taken advantage of. And Six, seven years ago, when the agencies started coming out with rules, it faced a lot of pushback. But over time, it just sort of became the norm. So now it is the thing. And I, I think if you have an Instagram account or a TikTok account, you go on and you've curated your own feed. So you have people you follow. It goes without saying you're going to see something that says like hashtag ad or partner or something like that. So you know within milliseconds what you're seeing and where it's coming from and who it's being paid for. Bye. That's cool. I didn't know that it was a thing now. 
Yes, because you're not on social media easy. like we are, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> the, this might be the reason. This this is true. It's re- it's relatively new, and it's interesting to see where you know you'll be working with companies in America who are pretty familiar with it because the rules have been around since pre 2017. And then you'll work with companies over, let's say, in different countries in Europe who don't necessarily have those rules yet, or at least the rules aren't as heavily enforced. And we'll say from the legal side, oh, we need to we need to make sure that we're disclosing. And the other side will go, what are you talking about? We don't we don't have to do that. We want we want people to think this is totally natural and isn't coming from anywhere. Those have been really interesting conversations to have. Uh, and ultimately, when you have something like a government entity telling you you can't do something, there's really no wiggle room with that stuff. I was saying, and on the flip side, in Europe, they have the GDPR rules, right, which now affect anybody that's working on, although that's not necessarily enforced in America, but if you have an audience over in Europe, you have to comply, right? Yeah, the GDPR rules are definitely leaking their way into America in, in some really substantive ways. You'll see a lot of GDPR language coming into contracts. And yeah, GDPR is, is mostly about privacy and, and uh, collecting data. Of, of users for websites and companies who are collecting data and other more phys- other physical means. So you'll see a lot of companies here who are ahead of the curve and they're going, we're going to comply with the GDPR. Also, I'm licensed in California. Though, sorry, I'm licensed in New York, rather. I don't practice in California, but you, know, you see enough coming out of California. California has rules that are a little stricter than the rest of the, the U.S. for the most part, and they actually copy a lot, of, a lot of the GDPR sentiments. So you'll see that stuff leaking over from there. To here in New York, where we are. So it's all kind of molding into one. I think the, the most fascinating part about all this is even though my practice is based in New York, I'm licensed in New York, my clients are in New York. In a, in a different capacity, my practice is completely international because the way that things are released these days, I'm going to have clients who put something online and suddenly it's being seen in Australia at the exact same time. So it just goes naturally that you're thinking about things on this almost international level because you can't avoid it at this point. Yeah, and it's important too because I think in the, even in the arts world, although that might be generally related to uh, websites and stuff like that, it's about newsletters and announcements and getting email addresses and sending stuff out. So if you're trying to promote your show and you're trying to send stuff out through mail outs that you can't just take, technically you can't just take those lists of people and, and spam them, right? You can get in a lot of trouble in a lot of different places for spamming people with emails. That's yeah, that's been. <laughs> I feel like that's become a constant uh, throughout most of the planet at this point. Yeah, luckily. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna go more or less down the same um, route, um, talking about the World uh, Intellectual Property Organization and how that uh, regulates at the end of the day. And I think it's very tied to a lot of what you've mentioned that you do in the digital world. It ends up being everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm working today even on on just helping a client put together a um, podcast style uh, production, and they're incorporating some pre-existing copyrighted film from Italy. So, as much as we have to consider the U.S. law, we also have to take a quick look over what's happening there uh, and understand what we can can't necessarily do. Or at least what the implications of going ahead and putting some existing works in there. Everybody's drawing from everywhere at this point. And it's silly to think that we would just be focused literally on our own country. It is, it's web-based stuff, but the reality is too, if you're doing a film or even uh, local theater, if you want to build an audience and you've got a pretty niche production, you're going to go out there and you're going to put make a website to fundraise and you're going to 
talk to anybody who's willing to listen. So, you know, you might have a film that's completely US based, but you're talking to people halfway across the world, either to help you fundraise or just to get your name out there more. So when your film is ready, you get more people seeing it, even though it's totally terrestrial. Mm. And has NFTs entered into your workplace a little bit? A little bit. I work with a couple people who do it. It is definitely interesting from a digital art perspective where you have, you know, I, I do work with visual artists and you have visual artists whose medium is their computer. They're, they're drawing everything on their screen. You know, they have a, a pen, uh, like a stylus. That's, that's their brush essentially. And when you have art like that, you don't have that one first physical copy. You've got a digital copy, which could be replicated with 100% accurately a million times over. So it's really interesting in that capacity. Uh, and that's a bit of the capacity I've seen it in. Some of the other applications that people talk about that I've heard that are really interesting that hasn't really been exercised yet are, are tickets for live uh, theater and for sports events and for for concerts. But for the most part, that's, yeah, it's an interesting new area. I'd say we're in November now, six or seven months ago, it was the biggest thing in the world. And it's already started to get a little bit quiet from what I've seen. But I think the most interesting part of it will be where it ends up in another year or two, once the dust is settled, once it's it's not necessarily the most exciting thing in the world. It's just something that's actually practical for for certain types of artists. Yeah, I'm interested to hear that you think it it's not as as big as it when it first came out because I was always like I understand the hype, but I do think that for artists and especially sort of performing artists and stuff, there is a platform there to be protecting or owning some of the content that you may make or videos or anything like that. So I think in the future it could be a way to, or even we were talking the other day with uh, who was it Drama League Anna about releasing the very first digital program from a Broadway show and having if you were there on the opening night you have the NFT of that program or something like that. There's ways to monetize those aspects of shows if you're smart about it. And I think the thing is that because people everybody loves a, a token from a Broadway show, right? And so and also the it's harder and harder for uh, arts to make money if they're not government funded or you know they're not as popular as people expect them to be. So if that's another way that the, the community can generate more revenue, it's probably something that should be explored. But I think we largely don't understand how we could utilize it, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's a big thing. It's it's people are talking about using it for collectibles, and it's sort of the same notion that getting a baseball signed 75 years ago would be today. And part of it for me is, and, and you know, this is at some point I got into law and I was like the young guy and now I'm in my mid thirties and I'm starting to be like, Oh, I, I see the new generation coming in and doing things differently and doing things that I don't necessarily understand automatically. But part of it is, you know, the interest that we have in entertainment change over time, people weren't listening to podcasts more than much more than 15 years ago. Now it's one of the hottest things in the world. People were to think I was silly in some capacity back in the day, you know, with massively uh, multiplayer online role-playing games People have these like second lives online that didn't exist a decade or two ago. And I think, you know, I grew up when World of Warcraft was huge. So I kind of get it. And I understand why that's appealing to me or to people even younger than me. But generation before me probably doesn't get that at all. It's sort of the same thing. It's like, where's the value in something that doesn't exist physically? Well, you know, people my age get it to some degree because we grew up with the Internet. And I think people even younger probably place even more value in purely digital uh, things. 
So it makes sense that there's potentially a world for it where just a marker on the blockchain of your ownership of, yeah, a, a playbill from an opening night of a show means a lot to you. That maybe doesn't mean something to the person who's been going to Broadway for the last 50 years because they have their whole physical library of playbills that they've collected. But if we shift to digital only, it makes a lot of sense that that might actually be something that people want. Yeah, oh, that's so interesting. I, I never really looked at it from a generational perspective, but I, I agree. It, generally, the the younger generation is going to be a lot more au fait with that than perhaps we us on the cusp of <laughs> real versus digital. You made me think uh, when you were talking about creating your your persona, right? When you're in a video game or in this avatar, is that something you can register as well? Is that at the end of the day is your other likeness? I guess, your digital image. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. Well, on the one hand, if you're doing it through a game, like let's say I'll, I'll use World of Warcraft because that's that's my generation's like serious online game. You're going to be doing it through the video game company's platform. So you probably can't own that. I haven't read the terms of service for World of Warcraft uh, ever but I imagine that you don't own the character you make. So there's that on the one hand, probably not going to be a thing, but what you could have is if let's say you create something from, from scratch, there are people on social media out there who are, have a digital overlay over their own person and they've created their own persona. There's a whole bunch of those. Now I wouldn't think that that would actually come with likeness rights. It'd probably come down to copyright because if you're creating a new character that lives on top of you. That's the same thing as if you created that character in a book or you create that character for a, a play or a film. It's just another way of creating art, really. Like if you you have this second persona that you're living some sort of life through or you're or li running a simulation, I mean, I'm not going to get into the meta metaphysics of whether that's an act or whether that's you because <laughs> that's probably more for a philosophy podcast. But, you know, it's, it's, that's something you're putting out there. That's something you've created. It's a work you've made. And if you identify with that, great. I would think most great authors identify with their characters too. Um, so it, it would probably come back to that being something that you have copyright in and should be registering the copyright over. Mm, mm, interesting. I want to go back a little bit to, you know, your work with, with performers and artists and, and contract negotiations. I, a lot of our feedback in some of the podcasts that we've had is that a lot of people learnt and trained in the arts, but they were never actually taught the business of being an artist. Do you find that there's a lot of education process when you're going through a contract negotiation with a performer or artist or creative where you're like, okay, you're not really, you need to learn a lot about this aspect of it? Do you find that you're educating a lot? Yeah, absolutely. I think I would never expect any of my artist clients or performer clients, or even even clients who are mainly business people, I would never expect them to know the exact same things I do. Just like I don't know ninety percent of what they do, I, I'm not able, you know, to perform at the level my clients can. I'm not able to sell like some of my more business minded clients can. Um, but I think that it's important that every artist out there and every performer out there gains some sort of literacy when it comes to contracts and when it comes to the sort of legal and business things that you should be looking out for. Uh, so usually when I work with clients for the first couple times, we'll work on that first, con I'll work on that first contract 
you know, if somebody's handing me the contract and I'm reviewing it for them, I'll have a quick call with them. We'll go, okay, what are the really big pieces you need? Like, what, like, tell me what they said they're going to pay you. Tell me how many days you're supposed to be working. If you have a specific role in a show, tell me what that's supposed to be like. And then we'll, I'll have that in the back of my mind or rather on a notepad. And then I'll dive into the contract and then I'll be looking not only for those, but then for the more fundamental legal pieces. And then what I'll do is go back to the client and say, hey, here's what I did to the contract. There's a lot because this could be a 10, 15, 20 plus page agreement. So why don't we hop on a call and we'll go over all the big pieces together. And I like to try to teach sort of the fundamentals to, to my clients. So then the next time I work on a contract with them, there's going to be a shorthand where they understand a lot of what I'm doing uh, without me having to go through it. And, you know, I have people that I've been working with for for multiple years now, and we've gotten to a point where they hand me a contract. They tell me two things that I need to know. I know exactly what they're looking for. They know exactly what I look for. And it's just this flow that we have that I'll check in with them, say, here's everything that we got to. And they understand it for the most part. And they're better off for it because, you know, I don't always come in at the start. A lot of times the deals are negotiated before I even get there. And I only come in once a piece of paper is handed to, to my clients. So them having the knowledge to be able to use that and be able to, Negotiate with other people means a lot because it's going to not only put them in a better position, it's going to make my job a little bit easier. I think the most fascinating thing that I've seen, though, is a lot of my clients are around my age or younger. And you see this generation, the younger generation of artists care a lot more about the business side than what I've seen in, I'll say, artist performers that are older than me. And I'm not saying that's a rule, but sort of on average, that seems to be the case, which has been fascinating. There's something I talk about a lot is there is a stigma in the art and entertainment world that if you are an artist or an entertainer, you shouldn't be a business person. Uh, And I think that stigma is slowly going away. And it's a stigma that needs to go away because frankly, artists are business people. They're providing a service. They need to make a living off of what they do. And the more they can arm themselves with knowledge and know what they should be asking for and how they should be protecting themselves, the better off, not only are they going to be as individuals, but the entire industry is going to be as a whole group of performers and artists. And now a moment for our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Harlequin. Harlequin is the world leader in floors, stage systems and studio equipment for the performing arts. Established in the UK over 40 years ago, Harlequin is the preferred performance floor for the world's most prestigious dance and performing arts companies, theatres and schools. From the Royal Opera House to the Bolshoi Theatre, the New York City Ballet to the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Harlequin's experience and reputation are founded on the development, manufacture and supply of a range of high quality sprung and vinyl floors specifically designed for dance and the performing arts. Backed by an engineering team and independent research, Harlequin also designs, builds and refurbishes stages working with stage engineers and theatre consultants in leading venues across the world. Harlequin is the global leader in its field with offices in Europe, the Americas and Asia Pacific. Find out more at harlequinfloors.com, H-A-R-L-E-Q-U-I-N floors.com. That's an excellent answer. I mean, and it is, I think, I don't know, maybe it is a bit, bit of a rat race anyway now to be into the industry and uh, I don't know if it's you know if there's less of a backstop for the younger generation to fail right so I think uh, it's more important that they do approach it from a business perspective maybe that's just me postulating and speculating but uh, I feel like it might be harder 
and harder to break into this industry. And there's a lot of competition out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Look, a lot of people want to be artists and a lot of people want to be performers. And there's only so much room for, for people to make an actual living off of that. So there is a ton of competition in every single field, knowing basically, I mean, being, being the best you can at all angles, not just in your craft, but in, in the business side is absolutely going to help. If you're, you know, your early twenties and you are protecting, let's say you're a musician in your early twenties and you have a sense of how copyright works behind the music you write, you're better off than people a few generations ahead of you who had all their music stolen in the 60s and 70s. So if you can get in there, you're successful in your early 20s as a musician, and you are able to protect your music, which is tough because there are a lot of predatory agencies and uh, labels out there um, in the music world and in other areas of the entertainment industry. But if you can do that, you're setting yourself up for success in the long run. And getting over that hump of uh, I don't want to I don't want to learn the law or I don't want to learn the business aspect or I don't want to have to push for myself because I'm an artist. Getting over that is going to help you quite a bit because it's not just you don't just need the talent and the hard work like you need a bit of the acumen as well. And especially when you can so easily release your stuff online, right? Without and then suddenly it's a big hit and you've got to go back and try and prove that it's belongs to you. And you know I think that. The accessibility of getting it out there is great because people can see it and it's really, really popular. But then if you haven't done the due diligence in protecting it as your own work, then you can end up in the same way in the 60s and 70s. You're still ending up losing it, right? Yeah, absolutely. The worst the worst thing I see, which I probably see at least once a month, is somebody coming and going, hey, I just shot this amazing film or I just made this great album. And I go, oh, you're finished? They go, yeah, yeah. I go, okay. Did you do it by yourself? No, I had a whole crew helping me out. I go, great. Like, show me, show me the contracts they signed you to. And we're like, no, just a bunch of handshakes. And then we have to work backwards for, for <laughs> months and months <laughs> to try to make sure that make sure that before they release anything, there's not going to have, you know, one crew member come out of the woodwork and say, I own this, or or somebody come out and say, I wrote this half of this song, or something like that, um, which happens all the time. You know, mm. I I'm a I'm a transactional lawyer. I deal with helping people draft contracts and review things and negotiate and kind of uh, on the business side. But I've seen the litigation side and it is much more expensive and much nastier when lawsuits happen after the fact than compared to when you're just working to get a few contracts out there before you get started on stuff. Mm, make, make sure you're on the front end. Yes, I can. I can tell you, being on the front end is a a lot more has been a lot more rewarding than having to fight over things after the fact. Oh, talk about the handshake contracts! How can we get rid of those for good? You're never going to get rid of those for good. I mean, I I do handshake contracts with people in my everyday life all the time. It's just kind of a function of life, you know. You the the thing with with contracts, the thing with written contracts. This is what I tell everybody. Yeah, a contract is a contract. It's a legally binding thing. But at the end of the day, the value of a contract, whether it is half a page or a paragraph in an email or 50 pages, is really in not having something that, you know, you can run to a judge and say, hey, look what I have. I've got this, I've got this beautiful piece of paper here. It's more, no, setting out expectations. You put them in writing to make sure that both sides agree that they have the same expectations. And then there's still going to be a level of trust that you have to have in the person that you're working with. Like you, you can't enter into a contract 
knowing that the person on the other side is going to try to take advantage of you, right? You wouldn't, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, the handshake element still exists. I always want that to be there. You know, I, you don't have to be in love with everyone you work with, but you should trust them on some level and trust that they're going to do their job properly when you agree to something. So yeah, I, w- I would love to get rid of all handshake contracts. I would love everyone to be a little bit more literate when it comes to writing their own contracts. Cause at the end of the day, if you're doing something simple, if you put five lines in an email and they write back and say, I agree, that's already, you know, a hundred times better than literally just shaking somebody's hand and walking away because you have something you can turn to where you can both look at it and say, this is what we agreed to. And you can't do that. So, you know, handshake handshakes form the basis of every single contract. I have never worked on a contract that didn't start with two people talking to each other and saying, yeah, let's do this. And let's agree. Some, at some point, hands were shook, shaken. Uh, <laughs> hands have been shaken. <laughs> but, yeah, but it's, it's really, it's, it's really a matter of getting over that uncomfortable minute of going, Hey, I'm glad we agreed to it. Now can we put it in writing? And yeah. if you can get over that, you're, you're like getting to 50% of the way there already. I think I love the way you put it because yes, I agree. You always want to work with the people you trust and you like, and you start the conversation, but this idea of setting the expectations, which is, I think, key on the success of the project, right? Of everyone getting away with what they wanted or thought they were getting into. Yeah. If you, you know, take advantage of people and you do things that, let's say you trick somebody into signing a contract that they didn't fully understand, they come out the other end, not getting what they wanted. Well, you're never working with that person again. And you do that enough times, there goes your reputation and you're never working period. So it's, really important that all people are well the contract the legal term is meeting of the minds it's important that all sides know and agree and have the same concepts in their head that they're then putting onto that piece of paper yeah and i think also in a creative process you don't ever know if something's going to be big or small or just you you know hashing out ideas with a group of people so and it kind of if you get too uh, you own this and I own that on a, on a, just you jamming on a creative concept is, is uh, kind of stifling, right? Like I think it's, you don't start the creative process by working out your <laughs> profit share from it, right? You, you start no, it, you no. start it, you, you start yeah. it from that jamming and, and, and at some point in that process, you have to firm that up, but um, to come out of the gate with this is how we're going to do it. And then it's, it totally goes nowhere. Then it's a waste of time, right? It could be. Yeah. And look, any any script that was written with more than one person that didn't start at a major studio definitely just started over a cup of coffee or something harder and just two friends or two colleagues hanging out and talking. And it's tough. You know, a lot of I've seen relationships ruined because those conversations happen. And let's say a month or two goes by and people keep coming together and just sort of jamming together and, and, and working things out. And then one person decides they want to exploit the script in one way, the other person disagrees, or one person they thinks that they should have 51% because they came up with more of the ideas. It's tough. That's that's made a lot of sort of indie projects dead in the water just because people can't come to terms on what happens. So if you actually see yourself in a spot where you are about to create something with a friend, 
it's a hard conversation to have, but at some point you should say, Hey, wait a minute, let's just stop. This is, this is sounding really good. Can we just put on a piece of paper, just in pen, like we're 50, 50 on this or whatever it's going to be. Even if you do that, you're going to be in a way better position than if you kind of ignore that part of the conversation. And part of it again is getting comfortable with that being part of the conversation because it shouldn't be an uncomfortable part. It could ruin the flow. You're absolutely right. But why would it ruin the flow? It ruins the flow because we don't want to have that talk because we think it's uncouth. And if you could get in a mindset where that's not that big of a deal, like if you want to be an artist, not for fun, but for a living, if you want to be an artist for a living, treat it like a job in some capacity. If you love what you do, you know, having that five or 10% of the business legal side and it shouldn't ruin it for you. It, It should just be something that you're able to incorporate and over time, it will be more natural. I can tell you, like, clients that I have who started with zero contract knowledge who have now been out of five, six years with me, it's like we've got this second language now that we'll be talking about a project and suddenly we'll shift to the legal side and we're talking in words with too many syllables, uh, <laughs> but, it, but it works out and they understand it. And it's fine. And they know how to shut that off, too. So that's good. It's really just knowing when to put on the hats and knowing that it's not that big of a deal to have those multiple hats. Mm, amazing. I I love the the answer and the way to 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 look at it, right? To be it's just easy. Just it goes back to the idea business, of business savvy on top of your creative process. It's, yeah, there's, there's got to be some, like you said, if you're going to make a living, it's got to be you've got to, you've got to protect yourself. Yeah, and um, I, I think going back to the idea of setting expectations and having clear expectations is just key. Like I don't know, Anna, how many times you're gone to a gig and say as a stage manager what do you really want out of me like what really is my job here (laughs) oh i just usually figure it out on the go yeah i didn't get a job i've written my own job job description and then went and did it (laughs) i feel like that's the stage manager's plate though that you're gonna you're gonna have that for any job you're gonna be on a hundred page contract you're gonna get to set and something's gonna be out there that you never expected It is, but I usually do ask the question either as a stage manager or TD is like, really, like, what what do you need from me right now? Uh, but it's, yeah, to translate it to paper, and it's not always that evident. It's they're they're sometimes easier than than others. Yeah, and look, if if you're if you're on the crew, if you're a person like a stage manager, you're. If you're an actor, you're you're an actor, and and you have a very specific role. Like you're not going behind. You shouldn't be backstage setting up props. But if you're a stage manager, the possibility of scope creep in your work, where you come in there for a very defined role, and then suddenly a couple of the producers are are yelling at you, or directors yelling at you to do something that you're not just not equipped for, but you shouldn't be doing, happens all the time. And like I'll be honest, I, I mean the agreements for stage managers maybe aren't necessarily the most detailed when it comes to their exact roles and exactly what they're going to do. You're often just going to see a line saying, you know, this person's going to do the things that uh, would be customary of a stage manager in the, in the industry. And that's one thing, but yeah, setting expectations verbally from day one is going to get you much further than being quiet and waiting until you're in day 30 and overloaded with tasks that you never should have been given in the first place. Mm. And do you have clients in the in the technical realm as well as performing arts and creators? 
I do. I mean, for the most part, they are uh, cinematographers, videographers, uh, and that side. I work with some editors. I do think that it's relatively rare you're going to find sort of below the line crew, as we call them, film who would who would be represented by lawyers. That's why there's unions out there for a lot of the bigger industries, which is great because they give you the baseline that you wouldn't necessarily be able to negotiate for yourself. When I'm working with crew, it's usually in the capacity of working as production counsel for the production company. So still go through all the same things. And, you know, like, like you two have seen over time, you do this job longer, you know what you need to be asking for. So I've definitely fielded a whole bunch of questions from crew that maybe someone who's just starting out wouldn't be asking, you know, someone 10, 15, 20 years out is knowing exactly what they need to see in writing. And that comes from experience. Uh, but that comes from the experience of being comfortable with taking stock of your job um, and approaching it from the business side. Because again, stage managers are artists, but they need to look at things from the business side as well when they're protecting themselves and when they're protecting the shows. Uh, among technicians, we usually sign NDAs. I guess that's everyone's. And more often than not, you also start to sign non-competes. How enforceable are those, and and what's the real what what really is behind those? So it depends on where you're based in. Again, I'm I practice in New York, and we have one view on non-competes, and the I'd say the biggest entertainment hub, California has an even stricter view of non-competes where the the state government has actually kind of banned them in many different contexts. I think that non-competes in the entertainment world are not something I see too, too often. I see it definitely on the business side when you have sort of people in senior management roles. What, what have you seen it in, in your capacity in the work you do? I have, yes, absolutely, which kind of feels a little bit weird for me because, say, I work in the circus realm for Cirque du Soleil and there's a non-compete clause in that contract, but you kind of resign from that job and it says often it'll say something like you can't go work for a similar entity for the next 12 months or blah, 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 blah. But then the reality is, like, you are going to want to get another job and if that's my skill and expertise, how can you stop me going to work for Franco Dragone Entertainment Group? as a non-compete and are you ever going to follow that so it is for me personally it's it's, it's kind of comes up in my contracts and I'm like what why is this here because of course as long as I'm coming into a company and exiting a company fairly why couldn't my skill set stay in that realm of entertainment that I'm working with and what quantifies as competition because I would say those two companies essentially do very similar products so yeah it's weird for me it appears that that's very strange and disheartening because yeah you you're trained in a specific industry and the idea that you would leave your employer and couldn't work for anyone else especially when it's such a niche industry is kind of absurd and and yeah in California non competes are being banned outright i think i think there's a trend across the US slowly where non competes and non solicits in different capacities are being are being disallowed you know the federal government has put out some things about non solicits saying that you can't have agreements between companies where they agree not to hire people from the other side necessarily in some contexts. That that kind of restraint uh, on a personal level, I would be hard-pressed to be able to justify that if I was working on a production like that. And I would definitely recommend against it. And like you said, the reality is I don't think Cirque du Soleil would come after someone in your role for working with a competitor a year later. It makes absolutely no sense. So then the real question is why did you do that? Why did they put that in there? 
What are they really trying to do? Are they trying to destroy their competitors? Yeah, sure, maybe in some capacity. There are some things, though, that should be protected in those relationships. Like if you are getting trade secrets, if you are learning things from the inside of Cirque du Soleil that are very specific to Cirque du Soleil, uh, whether it's performance techniques, uh, whether it is business stuff uh, or legal stuff that is kind of behind the scenes that other companies shouldn't know. Yeah, it would make it would make sense for a production company or, or someone like Cirque du Soleil to put in their contracts that you can't use our confidential information for our competitors. That 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 I can get behind. But a full on, you can't go work in your field for the next year simply because you worked for us. It's pretty untenable. And you know, I'd be curious to see if A, they ever enforce it, and B, if that ever went to court, if a judge would actually hold it up because it seems unreasonable. And the thing is with contracts, yes, there are things that we agree to in writing. And there are some laws out there that restrict what you can and can't do in, in contracts. But ultimately, if something comes to the level of being unconscionable and it's just so egregious that it never should have been agreed to, judges will sometimes strike that out. So you can have things in contracts that you sign off on that might not necessarily be enforceable, but that's a pretty uncommon situation. That's definitely not the norm. Yeah. And I think, I mean, don't quote me on the 12 months or six months or whatever, but I know that I have seen it in my contracts. And I think you're so right. I think the non-compete is like, you can't be working for two companies that are competitors at the same time. Fair. And you can't be using um, any of the content and, and stuff that you've built or any kind of stuff that you've given one company and then go and take it and, and, and do it in another company. So again, that's fair. If you created an act at Cirque du Soleil and then you go and create another act that's slightly similar but a different costume in another in another show, that, that that's not cool, right? So but the skills that I learned as a stage manager programming automation in one company can be applied to another company. And I don't think you can ask that that would be a non-competition. That's the skill that I've cultivated, right? Yeah, so it, skill, it, it is a fine skills line. Are skills. skills are skills. They're not really intellectual properties. So, yeah, exactly. You know, from, if we're going at it from the legal framework, it's not like there's actually anything there you can say, this is mine, you can't use it. Mm. Um, next time next time you're about to sign a contract with Cirque du Soleil, flip it to me first. <laughs> I'm going to call you up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, he knows wants to to see in in which context context we signed the non non compete. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I just have one. I think it's one last question on on contracts. Uh, I don't know if Anna has more, but um, we are very used to work in international environments with international communities, and while at the end of the day, you end up abiding by the whatever little. Uh, letter says this contract was written under this country's laws or this state's laws. What are the general things we're going to look at after in in general a contract, especially when we talk about international but um, communities because our audience is international. But in general, whether I sign it here in North Carolina and I work here, or if I sign it to go work in Hong Kong with Anna, or you know, yeah. So I think the way to look at it is. Not what legal terms you necessarily need to look out for, but what you need to get out of the job. Just like you were saying before, you get you show up the job, you say, what am, what am I doing here? Why am I here? What do you need from me? So most important thing about any job you're going to do, because you are not doing jobs solely out of the goodness of your heart, is where you're getting paid. That's probably the first thing you want to see. You want to make sure that 
whatever they're going to pay you matches up with what they told you they were going to pay. Um, because the second it doesn't match up, either somebody made a really bad typo or somebody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. So that's the first thing. Uh, another thing you need to look at is how long is this contract going to last for? You know, where are you, are you being hired for a year? Are you being hired indefinitely? Are you being hired for six months? Those, that's the second thing. The third thing you're going to look at comes back to what is your role? What are you doing on this production? What are you doing in this show? And you want to make sure that it fits. Um, it matches with what you applied for. It matches with what you interviewed for. And it matches with what you know you can do and what you want to do. Those are the three absolute biggest things. Those are not legal. Those are just almost, I want to say, common sense. Everything beyond that, things that starts to get into legal things like who owns what I do, who protects me if something goes wrong, do I need to have insurance? Do if, like you said, if if this contract gets litigated, where what court would it be in? All those other things. I mean, there are literally dozens and dozens of things that you could be looking out for, but your starting point is always going to be money, time, job. Like those are the three big things that all of us have to worry about with literally everything we do. So use that as your starting point. And the reality is, you know, not everyone's always going to have a lawyer. That's fine. But when you start getting into bigger jobs and when you start getting into jobs that matter to you, reach out to a lawyer or reach out to a friend who has more experience in this field who has read contracts before, so they have a better sense. It's never wise to read something completely in a vacuum. Look, I I started in law school when I knew nothing about contracts, and then I started in a law firm and was taught by other lawyers. I didn't teach this all to myself. And it's the same for everyone in every industry. Find, Find those fundamental things you need. Talk to other people around you. And if you can, start reaching out to professionals. There are lots of lawyers out there who love to talk to artists. Uh, who can help you out. I mean, particularly if you are traveling halfway across the world for production, that's a pretty big deal. That's a big commitment. If you're leaving your home and let's say you are flying to Hong Kong for six months, you're uprooting yourself. You might want to talk to somebody, a professional who can help read it for you and make sure that everything in there matches your expectations. I would also add two sort of non-legal factors to that, when you, especially when you're considering contracts overseas, is what's the cost of living in the country that you're going to because what might be a reasonable wage from your perspective in your country of origin may or may not win in another country and also what are your tax implications that's a massive one for me and I can still say that I'm still waiting through after being 15 years an expat trying to figure out who I'm actually paying tax to but also it's it's you know depending on how long you leave the country and how long the contract is you can be majorly screwed by having to pay tax in two places or you have to stay out of country for a certain period of time to be able to pay less tax for certain countries so it's a minefield and always look into that because otherwise you Absolutely. can be burned. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good point that's not even something i do that's where i would say all right time to bring in an accountant because that mm. that does get so complex and it really does affect things on a grand grand scale mm, mm. And you can sort of be coming home with a great experience but not much cash in your pocket if you're not smart about it. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, we've, we've kept your time for a long time, so we want to finish up with asking, like, what's one of the – what's your favourite thing about your job? My favourite thing about my job is I took a field that on an academic level I was very much in love in law and, and to a lesser degree philosophy, which I started before law, where I take – arguments and concepts and apply them uh, in a real world 
application. And then I get to marry that with art and entertainment and media and all these things that on a personal level mean so much to me. You know, music is huge to me. Movies are huge to me. Getting to chat with artists and see them take things from the inside of their brains and bring it into the real world and be a small part of that, if only because I'm helping protect them or helping to get them to the next job means a lot. And that's really the most exciting part of it to me that I can take this kind of thing that to the outside world is sort of boring, maybe a little too academic and rote and applied something beautiful. Um, and every week I'm working with somebody who's doing something fascinating that I never would have seen if I wasn't in this job. That's cool. So if you could change something, what would you change? <laughs> Gotta be careful with this one. If I could change something, you know what? You're gonna have to get back to me. That's a that's a really tough one. He's I think leg, like with his any, legal brain yeah. is ticking over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to walk into any land. Look, job, my job, like any other job, is a job at the end of the day. It's got its headaches. You know, I I'm a lawyer, so I fight with people sometimes. That's not the best thing in the world, but it's just kind of part of the job. So I don't think there's anything specific I would change. I would definitely say I'm looking forward to pandemic being fully over. So I could get back out there with my clients into the real world again, because you can't see it at home, but I'm doing this podcast from my bedroom because we don't go into our offices uh, much more, but that's a very unique specific thing that, you know, crossing our fingers, it's going to be over <laughs> sometime in the near future. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for spending some time with us today on Theatre Art Life. And um, it's really interesting what you do, Adam, and very useful to the industry. So thank you. And I think I do want that philosophical conversation about online characters at some point. <laughs> I also want um, just to go back a little bit. Can you tell our audience how can they find you? If they have more legal questions, they want to hire you. They need to revise contracts, drafts. Absolutely. So I think the best way to reach me is through my website or through email. It's a bit of a mouthful. You can find me at www adamweismanlaw.com that's a-d-a-m-w-e-i-s-s-m-a-n-law.com my phone number is there my email is there my uh, manhattan office is there all those ways all, all those things on the contact me page are ways to reach me uh, by all means love meeting new artists if you have any questions feel free to reach out I'd be happy to chat with you thank you very much thanks And yes to the philosophical conversation <laughs> Thank you. Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 US per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theatreartlife.com. Dot com.